Hello, everybody. My name is Jeremy, and welcome to another episode of In It Together. I'm joined by my host, or my co-host. This is Brent Gunn. I'm the podcast editor and a videographer here at CM Life. Okay, so today we're going to talk about uh, Venezuela, some teacher strikes, the government is no longer shut down, at least for now, Uh, Bernie Sanders possibly running, and some 2020 candidates dropping out. Uh, So let's start with Venezuela, because I think this is one of the bigger events that's happened in this past week, especially internationally. Um, And a lot of people don't know anything about it. So I I stayed up late last night, and I woke up early this morning, so I could do research, so I could know something about it, because I didn't until yesterday. Um, So basically, the current president, President Madrulo, I think I'm saying that right. Maduro. Maduro, sorry. Um... There were protests against him in 2017 after the economy was generally crashing. So there were less jobs, people weren't making money, people just didn't have food. Um, During that time, he consolidated power to become basically an authorian. Uh, The first clue that he was not open to democracy in Venezuela came in 2015 when he first became president. Uh, The Venezuelan National Assembly, which is basically its Congress, had a majority that was in opposition to him. Um, They tried to limit his power, and this put his rule at risk. So in response, he packed the court's Supreme Court, or he packed the country's Supreme Court uh, with friendly justices that made the National Assembly basically powerless. Um, This move was soon reversed. A few days later, the Supreme Court flipped back on it, but not after the Venezuelan uh, people started protesting. Um, He then made a whole new governing body that could change the country's laws called the National Constituent Assembly, which essentially replaced the National Assembly. Um, This gave him control over all three branches. Uh, Since he then rigged the elections and arrested and killed members of the opposition party, he was pretty much in control of the government. Um, Since then, in February of 2018, uh, mediation talks between the UN fell, or they fell apart, rather. Uh, He won re-election in May of 2018, and in January of 2018, Juan Guaido, remember that name, who was at the time an unknown opposition leader, then led the powerless National Assembly, called, um, remind me how to, Madrulo? Maduro. Maduro. I'm really bad with names. He called Maduro a usurper, which is kind of like Game of Thronesy. I like it. It's a big move. It's a power move. He then swore himself in as interim president, which is also a big power move. Many countries, including the U.S. and Canada, recognized him as the leader since then. On January 10th, a few days ago, Madrulo, I'm saying it wrong again, um, was sworn in. Brent's given up on correcting me. This prompted uh, U.S. Vice President Pence to speak out and say that the U.S. would recognize the country's new government. This new government is now at the best position it's ever going to be to take control. Um, We're seeing other countries like England not giving the current President loans, things like that. I think Venezuela is quickly going to become a new, led by a new government. The thing with Venezuela, I feel, is very, very complicated. Um, it's complicated for a number of reasons. Uh, Pre Chavez, we had neoliberal reforms in Venezuela, and Chavez, and I'm by no means saying that Chavez was perfect, and I, I'm not a fan of Chavez, but uh, what Chavez did and what he symbolized in Venezuela. Most Venezuelans are supportive of the the, 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 the legacy of uh, Chavez. It did radically change Venezuela. Uh, you could probably argue for the better during his reign. Definitely. Uh, and currently, currently Venezuela is, I've heard it described as a developing uh, third world social democracy. And the problem is that, one, there's been sanctions imposed on Venezuela for, I mean, years and years now. And two... After Chavez and, you know, in turn, uh, 
his kind of economic policy of Chavismo, Maduro hasn't continued on the legacy that Chavez kind of established. And it's completely reasonable for the people of Venezuela to have deep structural problems with uh, Maduro. It completely makes sense. However, the response to Maduro, Guaido, I think the Venezuelans are very, very smart to be skeptical of who is supporting Guaido and why they're supporting Guaido. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that, you know, uh, the Venezuelans should stand with Maduro. I think that Maduro has appropriated the worst aspects of Chavez's legacy. Yeah, basically. And he's been a very weak continuer on from that from that legacy. Because Chavez, he did um, address first and foremost the problems of the most impoverished in Venezuela. Yeah, and he subsidized food, education, um, and things like that. He was a super populist leader, and that's why he was able to come to power in the first place. And a lot of that had to do with an oil surplus that Venezuela discovered, kind of congruent with history when Venezuela tries to nationalize its own oil industry. Other countries don't like that. Um, we don't like when Iraq did it. We don't like when Venezuela does it. So I think that the idea of uh, the Venezuelan people re removing Maduro or replacing him democratically of their own volition, you shouldn't disagree with that idea. But Guaido... And essentially what and what he re represents is a Macron style complacency with whatever U.S. foreign policy or European foreign policy they want to implement in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that's why when you hear people say go home Yankee and you see that that kind of skepticism coming from which I, I will still say there is a large camp of people that are pro Maduro. There are a large portion of Venezuelans and I'm not saying that they're necessarily right, but. There are a large portion of Venezuelans that are skeptical of this uh, Guaido, Trump, U.S.-backed. Um, essentially, I'm not sure if uh, regime change is necessarily the most technically correct term, <laughs> but symbolically it is kind of a, a soft regime change. Definitely. Absolutely. And uh, I can't in good conscience support that because, in my opinion, that should be left to the Venezuelans. And uh, unfortunately, I think that, you know, the, the failures of Maduro, which we need to address the failures of Maduro, um, completely mobilize the propagandic rejection of Venezuela's existence because we're constantly, this is pivoted as a human rights problem or a socialism problem or, a, you know, Venezuelan's government has crumbled because of Chavez residue socialist uh, top-down governmental system. 80% of the economy in Venezuela is privately owned. You know, we need to stop with uh, addressing problems with a very simple label. We need to look at like the, the the larger contextual history of Venezuela, and we need to look at the 70s. We need to look at why Chavez came to power. He came into power. He got that grassroots power in Venezuela. He revolutionized Venezuela because the programs of the 70s failed the people. There was massive wealth, massive wealth disparities. There was uh uh. Uh, horrible, horrible. Like, if you think the conditions in Venezuela are terrible now, imagine that higher levels of of infant mortality, of illiteracy, of crime, of I mean, you name it. Maduro failed to 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 continue on a legacy and to enhance it, and now the global pow powers of the world realizes a very easy opportunity to paint Venezuela with the brush that they've been painting them as another failed example of socialism that the U.S. has to come to reform and and uh, uh, remodel. 
and, you know, quote unquote, uh, uh, bring democracy to the biggest issue right now. And the reason that um, Maduro's now faced the backlash so heavily internationally is that he's basically gotten rid of dem- of democratic elections. So until now, we've always like you've been able to fall back on at least they can vote for representation. And then now that that's gone, that's where the red line has been drawn. Yeah, uh, and and that, yeah. And that's where the the biggest worries internationally are is that this is no longer a country that can democratically elect its leader. And that is why any anybody else is now better than Maduro. Like from an international perspective, anybody who is pro democracy is better than anybody who is anti-democracy. And from there, once you instill a, a democratic leader and once you reinstill democracy into this country, that's when you can start and and f- really drilling down and fixing the problems. And right right now, you can't do any of that because there is no way for the people of Venezuela to democratically vote and change their leader. Democracy is promised by the U.S. almost constantly in these situations. Democracy is what is promised that the United States will bring, and in almost every instance, the opposite happens. I don't think the U.S. is ever going to bring anything to Venezuela. I think the American people and even the American government is so tired of dealing with bringing democracy. I don't think that's a, on the U.S.'s radar anymore. I don't think bringing democracy is going to happen anywhere. I know Pompeo said uh, something in inside the U.N., but I don't... I, do not think there will ever be a U.S. military action or anything in Venezuela. Certainly not in our lifetime. Like well, that's, there, there doesn't need to be if there isn't an op- if there isn't an opposition that warrants that. If the transition is this Guaido person who just peacefully comes and symbolizes, hey, anything's better than Maduro. Sure, maybe in theory anything is better than Maduro. However, let's think about what could be the long-term implications of essentially a U.S. sock puppet president having control in Venezuela. What are the long-term implications of that? I'm not saying that Maduro uh, should remain in power. I'm not saying that Maduro is a good president. The complicated scenario we find ourselves in is Maduro's bad, but this other possibility is also bad. And the Venezuelan people are kind of stuck because they can't really pick any other solution because now this Guaido he has this universalist global support. Mm-hmm. It's and weird. now that he has that, that almost trumps any kind of argument that the Venezuelan people could make. Yeah. If anything, I think it's an unde- undemocratic process. I, I think that this should be left to the Venezuelans. If, if the Venezuelans come in mass and say we want Guaido, then by all means, give them Guaido. Guaido's current... His... But he didn't even run in the last election. No, no. His, his current method to... Like the fix that he's pitching is he's declaring himself interim president and then he's going to have elections to have an actual president. The risk is Guaido could throw that out the window and then become the next dictator, which we've seen time and time again happen around the world. And it's worrying that international leaders jumped on his bandwagon so quickly and have given him so much credence when we really don't know anything about him. We don't know what he's going to do when he's elected. We don't know why he's like he was a relatively unknown person. Was it just patriotic like he just thought he would take up the banner of venezuela like right then and there i i'm not i'm not sure what his motivations are and i don't think anybody really is i i i just don't want to see the united states continue the trend and i know that they're only going to i mean it's like i i can talk all day about how i don't want them to do something but it doesn't really matter because unfortunately 
this is this is oil. This is global economics. If if we think that this is about democracy, if we think this is about no, it's, it, this is about maintaining economic constants. And I'm just very skeptical of a promise of democracy from especially a Trump-backed uh, figure who has an easier time accepting with very, very uh, strong nuance, you know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia than he does trying to diplomatically work out this issue with Maduro or try to, I mean, and even that, him, trying, that's why he him trying to diplomatically it. work it out with Maduro, I think that again, I'm not sure if we're needed, wanted. No, I, it's not even that I'm not sure. I know we're not, we're not needed. We're not wanted. But we will we'll never accept that. And I, I just want people to look at this very skeptically. Maduro may be bad, but the grass isn't always greener. It'll be interesting to see how this develops. I think this is one of this is going to be one of the defining international political things that happened, certainly in early 2019. And I think this is going to tell us a lot about how the Trump administration deals with these international issues. Um, even though it's, what, three years into his presidency, we don't know how he deals with international issues because they're always so different. And I think that's why he had Pence do it was because he really didn't know what the hell was going on. Hola, I'm Mike Pence. That was really cheesy to me. <laughs> okay, well, you, what's your, you have a topic? Yeah, that was so, the most awkward transition anybody's <laughs> ever done, and I'm, I'm standing by it. Yeah. So speaking of uh, awkward transitions, I'll try to make one right now. <laughs> um, so the LA teachers' strike, um, it's been getting a little bit of media coverage, but one main point about the uh, strikes, and if you're not aware, uh, the LA teachers' strike is essentially a strike uh, happening in the Los Angeles Unified School District, which is one of the largest school districts um, in California. Uh, one of the largest school districts, period, in one of the largest economies on the planet. And this school district is very, very vital to the, the, the educational fruition of California. And you could probably argue people that, you know, will get education in California, then relocate someplace else. But what the teachers are striking for isn't just, I mean, we hear this story and when most people are looking at, you know, the story of teachers striking, they're probably assuming, oh, they're striking for better wages, they're striking for benefits, they're striking for, you know, collective bargaining power. And uh, in some cases, that's correct. They are, <clears throat> they are striking for better um, uh, uh, working conditions, better conditions for students, better treatment of students. There are some um, applications of law within the uh, LAUSD that are very troubling. Uh, there's cases of, uh, it's essentially like a stop and frisk method where the Police are able to come into uh, uh, schools within the L.A. USD and essentially require students like uh, they, they, they can ID search a student without a warrant if they're in a school. Yeah, we had that at my. Yeah. At, I feel like most high schools. Yeah, but um, the, the problem is that a lot of teachers are saying that this um, exercise of power is, I mean, it's not going to shock anybody, but it primarily targets uh, individuals of color. Yeah. Um, and they think that that's, you know, obviously kind of a, a targeted trend. However, the big, big thing of why the teachers are striking, and they've described it as a, quote, existential reason, because what they're trying to do is remove the influence of private education and uh, charter schools within California. Um, the current superintendent of uh, the uh, L.A. USD, and when I say LAUSD, I mean the Los Angeles Unified School District, is Austin uh, Butner, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, who was a uh, owner of previous international 
uh, investment banks. Um, so clearly Qualified. a person, clearly a person who should be in charge of uh, one of the largest, you know, education suppliers in the in the country. But um, a lot of teachers are saying that uh, they are there's literature being proposed to radically transform the schooling in California. And they want to do it, you know, obviously across the country, too. They want to make the education system essentially a, con- a competitive market in the same way that you hear Ted Cruz talk about healthcare. You know how Ted Cruz and Bernie would have those like CNN debates about healthcare. Yeah. And Ted Cruz's main talking point is, well, we shouldn't have it. We should allow people to compete across state lines and try to find the best thing. They want to bring that to schools to where parents can go online and essentially read a Amazon style review of a school see the number of stars it gets, see, you know, what they have to offer and treat schools in the same way you would treat essentially buying a car. And mm-hmm. what happens is uh, look at look at what happens to used cars, look at what happens to cars that maybe don't have high demand, look at uh, conditions of work that happens in a profit motive. I mean, li- uh, corners will be cut. And in that instance, what happens is kids are going to get bad educations, have their educations hijacked, uh, stopped of their own, stopped uh, against against their consent, or they're going to be entered into the charter school system, which is littered with deep-rooted, unregulated problems. Uh, the idea that charter schools are something that Democrats or any any person, person. any person left uh, politically should be in support of <coughs> Cory Booker. Um, is very uh, is Booker. very very troubling because uh, if you want to talk about deregulation being a problem in any facet of American life, the deregulation of education it's is, ex- the is most... extremely troubling. Yeah, and uh, what the teachers are essentially fighting for is they don't want education to become increasingly privatized because the consequences of this, the LAUSD already has a negative re- reputation for having. Far too high of class sizes in the most, uh, you know, economically disparaged areas of the schooling district. It already has a reputation for high dropout rates, for high expulsion rates, for very obtuse reasonings. The teachers essentially, I mean, it goes without saying the teachers aren't compensated fairly. It goes without saying that the students, uh, there are there are clear uh, divides in quality education based on, I mean, you know county based on where where you're located and that's because of the private incentive of education because if you set up a private school in a wealthier district which i mean if you're seeking to get a wealthier clientele you're probably going to go to a wider district which will just statistically probably have more money in it more economic incentive you're not going to set up schools in a place where you don't see economic prosperity or educational prosperity yeah if your goal is to set up a school for profit you do it where you can make the most profit exactly and And what the teachers want is they want to transform that education system to a community funded and a community organized education system where uh irregardless of county irregardless of you know whatever because the the school of choice argument is kind of a facade you don't really have school of choice you're given school of how much economic mobility do you have for your child's education Mm -hmm. and the teachers of california are trying to fight against that and if they win if we see like some landmark movement happen or any kind of uh i mean 
anything really happen. I hope that this can become a, a trend that goes across the country. Hopefully we can see more teachers strikes, maybe in the same that we, same way that we've talked about, you know, uh, free public college pre, you know, maybe we can move the, the, the conversation to removing private education. Maybe we can start having that conversation of, well, maybe all education should just be a kind of community um, provided service yeah. rather than a privatized quote-unquote public service the best argument i i've heard for fu- publicly funding all schools um is that you're a citizen living in a country and you want to live in a country where your other citizens are as educated as they can possibly be you want to have educated citizens because educated people tend to be uh tend to donate more i believe um they tend to be more generous things like that like it's better to live in a place with smarter people that's something that we can all agree on so publicly funding universities and higher ed and making sure that the public schools are as good as they can be is better for everybody. So everybody should pay for it. And also, I mean that, that too, but also I don't think that your economic situation should have a consequential effect on the education you receive. No, certainly not. I I don't think that things outside of your control, if you're a child who's born into a single mother household, are you really less deserving of an education that, you know, a person, you know, you know, three streets down is, is, is receiving because just because of how history has unfolded, uh, they have more economic mobility and ability than, than, than you do. I don't think that people should suffer because being deprived of an education, being deprived of the ability to receive a good, good education, in my opinion, that is setting people up for economic failure, for social failure. And it's not because, you know, they'll, they'll drift to crime or, or they'll, 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 they'll drift to drugs. Uh, that can happen, but at the same time, uh, we need to understand that schooling, it's, it's a very important social cohesion. It's a very important social institution that we need to take more seriously than this is another market function. And until we do that, I mean, America's schools suck. You're not going to find a single teacher in America that likes being a teacher. <laughs> think about that. Think okay. about every teacher Rephrase you've had in I same think, life. I, I think every, almost every teacher I've ever met likes being a teacher, but every teacher I've ever met says that there's, that the schools suck. Okay, yeah, yeah. You will never see a teacher on this planet that likes the school they work for, they, mm-hmm. that, or that, that is pleased with how they are compensated for their work. Yeah. Not one. Uh, if you talk about a bitter, bitter workforce, you got mailmen, you got teachers. Yeah, and there has been a tentative agreement as of a few days ago. So the agreement that's been reached includes a 6% pay raise, a gradual increase in class size over the next few years, more counselors, libra- librarians, and nurses per yeah. CNN. Yeah, one one of the uh, complaints that they had is that uh, a lot of the schools didn't even have full-time nurses at, at some of them. I mean, I've, are, I've never had a nurse at any school I've ever are, been to. These are schools in the fifth richest economy on the planet on the planet and the the problem is that you know the superintendents the 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 people that the teachers essentially respond to they're saying we don't have it in 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 our budgets we don't we can't afford to you know provide every student with you know whatever california specifically the LAUSD is 48th in the country for uh uh, uh per student investment wow 
one of the richest school districts, maybe the richest. I, I don't have the exact statistics, but I know for certain they are 48th in the country for the amount of money that they spend per student. We, we, we need to understand what private education does. Private ed education perpetuates this. I mean, we're here at CMU and we know that corners are cut. We know that money is allocated in ways that aren't necessarily. Have you seen this building? Have you seen this building? Have you seen the infrastructure wastes? Have you seen the, uh, <clears throat> have you seen the double incomes we pay? Have you seen, I mean, it's, it's truly ridiculous. It's the exact same argument and teachers are sick of it and good for them for fighting. And I hope that they fight and they get more. And I hope teachers all over the country are listening to this and they I think, rise up. I think we're going to yeah. see this more and more. And that's teachers striking because we've seen that it works. Uh, I know particularly in Michigan, that teachers really hate the way charters, public school teachers really hate the handling of charter schools in Michigan because it's really bad. Mm -hmm. Charter schools in Michigan are really terrible, and the, the way they treat students are really terrible. The Detroit Free Press has an excellent expose in it that I encourage anybody interested in it to read. But slowly, I think, the country's realizing that privatizing education, particularly K-12, through is the worst way to go about it. Uh, I Even Republicans who have historically been on the school of choice side for that reason, have started to realize in my own personal experience that charter schools are a bad thing and should not be encouraged or even promoted by, by the government. Well, if that's true, that, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I don't like the idea of uh, competitive uh, education. I, it causes a real weird taste in my stomach. I grew up in private education for most of my life. Uh, I'm sorry. At private education, they get away with <clears throat> near fucking murder with what they can teach students as quote unquote education yeah. in science classes. In science classes, I was, I was taught things, which my first year of college, I had to unlearn. I had to unlearn things, which could be debunked by a very simple, like bio one Oh one or chem one Oh one YouTube video. Yeah. There's a school in Michigan. I forget what it is. It's a public high school, I believe. And they have a religion or a private high school. They have a religions class and the entire class for the entire year is all about Christianity. And then because they have to teach every other religion, the last day of class is every other religion day. And that's how they get around it. And not having government oversight, that's clearly not the way that that rule is intended to go into effect. But they get away with it because they're a public because they're a private school. Yeah. And, and the argument is, well, if we don't have private institutions, how will um Students who want to learn about religion or learn about spirituality, get this in the public. You can learn about that in the public education system. There are public school classes which teach religion, teach mythology, teach religious studies, teach apologetics, teach philosophy, teach cultural studies. You will learn about multiculturalism, other religions. Uh, there are religion clubs in probably every public school There's the in internet, this country. Which There's is a great way to do internet, things. There's the internet, which if you want to express and live your faith, you can do uh, freely. And I, I don't think that private uh, that the absence of private education comes at the risk of, you know, uh, I don't know, killing Christianity. This is coming from, oh, from this is coming from a Christian. This you is, could just go to church. That's I mean, a you, great idea. You could, and at the same time, I mean, why? Why did we start saying the Pledge of Allegiance in schools? We did it to, we did it for anti-communist reasons. I mean, why, 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 why did we enter the best reasons? Why, why, why did we enter one nation under God into the the Pledge of Allegiance? We do these for political reasons. But now that you know political reality has changed slightly, maybe we can 
you know, take off some of those old robes that we've dressed ourselves in. Maybe we can, all right, you know what, this, this jacket, I've had it for a long time. It's a little rugged now. It's a little dusty. I'm going to go buy a new jacket. I'm yeah. going to go change my jacket up. Maybe, you know, America, let's change our jacket. The uh, That should be your slogan. Ojeda, since he's not running, you can just take his place. I, I, I will run for public office. Okay, let's talk about <laughs> Ojeda briefly. Briefly. Um, R.I.P. What is his full name? I've already forgotten. Richard. Richard Ojeda, who we've talked about previously, was the first candidate to announce his candidacy for the 2020 election as a Democrat. He since dropped out, stating, When I was a kid in grade school, my teachers always said that anybody could grow up to be president. Unfortunately, what I'm starting to realize <laughs> is that unless you have wealth, influence, and power, it's not going to happen. Ding, ding, ding. And then we he have a the winner. Mic. We have uh, a voice of reason in, in the political sp- sphere. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's that's Ojeda. Uh, I have one more topic before we wrap. I briefly, very briefly, want to talk about Roger Stone getting indicted. Oh, I called it. Uh, if you've been around me the past few days, you've known I won't shut up about calling Roger Stone being the next person to be put in jail. You can go back and listen to the podcast. I don't know which one. Uh, but my favorite thing about it, my very favorite thing is a tweet from ex-NFL player Chad Ochocinco or Chad Johnson. Uh the FBI arrested my neighbor, Roger, before my morning jog. I've only seen that shit like I've only seen shit like that in movies. Crazy to start my Friday. That's that's it. Should we end on that? Let's leave on a, a one more positive note. Okay. More positive actually, than actually Chad two, Johnson? Two, two slightly positive things. Uh, one, I will pivot here a little bit. Bernie may run in 2020. He's going to. And if he does, I, I think it's pretty much secure now that he will. Uh, I wish him the best. And I really think you're endorsing him. His, I'm not endorsing him, but compared to his competition. What else did you just do is, other than endorse? <laughs> this is semantical. This is, this, based on like compared to his competition, this will be a cakewalk. I mean, being on stage with uh, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. He's definitely the biggest name and the best speaker on that stage. And the least uh, compromised, yeah. probably. Mm-hmm. But on on the last positive note, uh, it's a little less timely. I want to give a shout out to the uh, Donkey Kong 64 live stream that H-Bomber guy did for the Mermaids uh, charity. Mm-hmm. Mermaids is a charity that you know helps transgender uh, children, teenagers, you know, with coping mechanisms, gives them some therapy. He raised over $300,000 for this charity, just streaming Insane. Donkey Kong 64 for nearly 60 hours. Uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez appeared on the stream. Chelsea Manning appeared on the stream. Uh, it was just a cool thing. You know, I watched some highlights of it. I, I was watching as it was happening. I didn't sit for 50 hours no, God straight. No, I but, watched uh, for like five minutes. Uh, but yeah, so shout, shouts out to that. Uh, maybe start streaming for really good causes if you're a Twitch uh, uh, if you if, listener, if you, if you are the one politically uh, caring Twitch user, maybe, maybe. That's it, guys. Thank you guys for listening to In It Together. We'll be back next week, probably same time, same place. I don't know. Who knows? Bye. Bye.